0: Let's open our Bibles to the book of Hosea, chapter 12. And we got down to verse 9. We didn't finish the 12th chapter in our last lesson. But before we got to verse 9, we found that Israel had, because of their sins, become wonders in the world and in the earth. And we said that they were wonders for many years. And of course, we know that they were finally regathered as a nation throughout the many years of wandering. We saw that they were like in verse 7 says, He is a merchant, and that means trafficker or a can- Canaan. The word actually means Canaan, merchant or Canaan. And it means traffic. And we know how that uh, they traded and uh, schemed and skenived and everything throughout the years. But anyway, that brings us down to verse 9. And we find that that's not all that God is going to do with them after they've been scattered and because of their sins. And so we pick up with verse nine in the twelfth chapter of Hosea and it says, And I that am the Lord thy God from the land of and I am that the Lord <laughs> let me read it again. And I that am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt will yet make thee to dwell in tabernacles as in the days of the solemn feast. Tabernacles or tents. And this has a symbolical reference or a future reference, prophetic reference I should say Uh, to the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is typical of the millennium or the millennial blessings for restored Israel. (coughs) Because God has said that He will restore them. And He tells us here that He will make them yet, that yet make them to dwell in tabernacles. As in the days of old, in the days of their solemn feast. The days that Israel did dwell in tabernacles. Turn to the book of Romans chapter eleven, if you will, verse twenty five and twenty six. Paul says here, and I would not have for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. And he's speaking here to the Gentiles that he doesn't want the Gentiles to be wise in their own conceits because they've been given the privilege of salvation and of the blessings of uh, that were previously bestowed upon the people of Israel. But he says that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So it's only for a period of time and until that time they're in blindness or have been in blindness. And the fullness of the Gentiles will be when the last soul is born again and the last person is saved. But it's God's purpose that the fullness of the Gentiles be uh, will be come in. And then in verse 26, look. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And we could go on. The whole context is worthy of notice. But we find that there will be a future time. Now back in Hosea, hold your place always where we're studying. There will be a future time that they will be restored. We know that there will be the time of Jacob's trouble before this happens. There will be during the tribulation. Spoken of... In the prophets. And uh, there will be a restoration of God's people at a certain period of time in the book of Revelation, we'll find. Uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 is a good one for us to look at concerning this. 12, verse 10 says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon Me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for Him as one mourneth for His only Son, and shall be in bitterness for Him as one that is in bitterness for His firstborn. If you have Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, be worthy to look upon the wording of this verse. It says, "...they shall look upon Me whom they have pierced." This is God's Word in the Old Testament. And He says, "...and they shall look upon Me." And then in the book of Revelation, it tells us they shall look upon Him, upon Christ, whom they have pierced, and mourn for Him as an only Son. Revelation one seven says, "Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him; all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him." Let me get this verse for you in John chapter—I mean Revelation chapter one, where John is speaking of Christ's coming. Let me read it: "Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him." And they also which pierced him in all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. So we have uh, several references. We could go into references of prophetic nature at this time, but we'll just let that go because we have many more things. When we study the book of Joel, right after Hosea. Joel is a very prophetic book about these things that we're talking about now. In fact, uh, we'll have references there to the same subject. Hosea chapter 12 now. Verse 10, I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. God spoken symbols, and He's spoken in visions. He's spoken in uh, typical words and meanings and figures and pictures in the Old Testament. It says in verse 11, Is there iniquity in Gilead? He asked a question. <clears throat> Surely they are vanity. They sacrifice bullocks in Gilgal. Yea, their altars are as heaps in the furs of the fields. Now, Gilgal is a seat of part of their idolatry. And we've been teaching all along about the idolatrous worship and how that they had departed from God. In fact, when we get a little further along, I want to give you some wonderful points about Israel's downfall. I don't know if we'll get to it tonight or not, but... If we do, we'll give you references from chapter 4 all the way through. Just a verse here and there that will show you. Chapter 4 and 5 and 6 and chapter 7 and 9 and 11 and 13. But I'd like to pass 13 before we get to that point. But notice it says, Yea, their altars are as heaps in the furs of the fields. In verse 12, And Jacob fled into the country of Syria, and Israel served for a wife, and for a wife He kept sheep. Once more reminded of Jacob and all of his journeyings and all the downfall of this one that was a supplanter. Jacob, who was the later named Israel, you know, after his experience with God. And, you know, we spoke of last week or week before that uh, he was the one that uh, laid hold upon his brother's heel. And uh, he was a supplanter from the beginning, even from birth. And the experience of Jacob And Esau later on. And how that he deceived Isaac, his father, when he was blind, an old man and blind. And how that he went into the country and worked for a a wife and he got the wrong wife after seven years of labor. Woke up the next morning as the wrong woman. And then uh, he had to work seven more years for the woman that he loved. Then he worked another period of time for another uh, seven for the cattle that he could take with him. So, as you know, he just had to keep on working. And finally, Laban, his uh, father in law, uh, thought he had got the best of him. But Jacob got the best of the deal finally because he fled with all the cattle that he had uh, obtained there in his place. All right. Anyway, Jacob. And then, verse 13 And by a prophet the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. And by a prophet was he preserved. Israel was preserved. Moses, of course, was their deliverer. Verse 14, Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Remember, time and time again, I've reminded you that when Ephraim is spoken of, uh, the nation itself is addressed, not just the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore, shall he leave his blood upon him, and his reproach shall his Lord return unto him. Ephraim's ruin and judgment... Because of his sin, in fact, the thirteenth chapter, as we begin to study it now, we find that the first eight verses have to do with ruin and judgment. We title these first eight verses "ruin and judgment." In verses nine through eleven, is it's the the destruction of Israel, and verses twelve through fourteen, mercy is to follow the wrath of God that's poured out upon them, and on down verse fifteen and sixteen, we find the desolation of the nearing judgment that is to come upon him and the horrors of it. But let's take this section that we're dealing with. In verse 1 of 13, when Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended in Baal, he died. Now, when he spake trembling, God exalted him and lifted him up. When he was in fear, when he was, in, uh, when he was humbled, sometimes we have to be brought down to our knees before we really realize what God will do for us in lifting us up. He exalted Himself in Israel. But when He offended in Baal, He died. Now I want you to notice uh, in verse 2, three things. The then dying nation of Israel. And because of what, these, what three things we find here. And now they sin more and more. That's the first thing. That's number one. Now they sin more and more. The second thing, And have made them molten images of the silver and idols according to their own understanding. All of it, the work of the craftsmen, they say of them. And they say of them, let the men, the last part is, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. So they not only sin more and more, they not only multiply their images and idols, but then they worship in that fashion and say, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. And you know, this same thing is repeated many times in the lives of individuals and even in... uh, The people of God today, they turn away from God. They sin more and more. They have their own idols, not images like they had then. But you know, Paul says covetousness is idolatry. There's a lot of things that can be classified as idolatry besides setting up an image of wood or stone or silver or gold. And so we need to rec- recognize that this has been repeated. And then let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves of idolaters worship what men worship today as well as Israel of old. Look at verse 3. Therefore they shall be as the morning cloud and as the early dew that passeth away, as the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor, and as the smoke of the, out of the chimney. So they're, uh, because they went from bad to worse, and you know, Uh, Paul tells Timothy that in the last days, men shall wax worse and worse. Evil men shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. We have that situation in this day and hour. That instead of men getting better and better, there's evil men and wicked men that wax worse and worse. They go headlong into sin. And because of that, what will happen? Their time is very uh, short-lived. Because in verse 3 it says, they shall be as the morning cloud. Morning cloud. The sun comes and burns it away. as the early dew that passeth away. The dew is on the roses and on the grass and just beautiful and sparkly and fresh. When the sun hits, it, what? It's gone. That's how fleeting and how uh, easy uh, Israel evaporated out of uh, their glory and their blessings of God. And then it says, as the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor, when they were thrashing on the wheat floor uh, threshold, Of the wheat thrashing uh, situation, as they did in the uh, Old Testament, we find that when the wind would come, it would blow the chaff away, and they had, of course, various means of getting, separating it too. Nowadays, we have the combines, and we know what that happens. Most, I'm probably most everyone has seen them combine wheat out in the field. When you do, well, cuts that grain, the heads off of the the stalk. And all the grain and the, the, everything goes in there and a lot of the stalk and everything. But then out of the fan tail or the back, there's a fan that just blows that chaff everywhere on the field. And the grain goes up there in the hopper and in the bin. And they put it in the trucks and haul it away. I remember one time my last wheat crop over in Oklahoma. Tom remembers this. I had a wheat crop there in the field. And flowers, those yellow flowers. I had more yellow flowers than I had wheat. <laughs> And I'm telling you, when it's that moist and that bad, you can hardly sell it. And there's a fellow that had an elevator down there in DeVal, Oklahoma, and I just knew that I wasn't going to be able to sell that wheat because they measured the moisture and everything. I drove, uh, I drove those trucks up there, and old, uh, what's his name? Shoehart. He was up from Dalhart, wasn't he? Dalhart's from Shoehart. Uh, Shoehart's from Dalhart. Anyway, he would, he just, Stuck his hand down in there. And he got a handful of flowers and wheat. says, dump it. You know, I mean, he bought it. Didn't dock me. He didn't charge me. one. Didn't, usually they'd dock you 5, 10, 20 cents a bushel. And every load was that way. So God must have been with me because it was my last wheat crop and I needed it to. I'd already gone to Fort Worth and, and uh, surrendered to preach. And I was down in the seminary and we needed that crop real bad. And sure enough... We went back. See, it started in January at school, and We went back in May or June or July, whenever it was, for the harvest and got the wheat because that's what I bought my property with down in Fort Worth and built a house there to live in while I was going to seminary. But anyway, to make a long story short, I just knew it. I wasn't going to sell a bit of that wheat. But you never know. God knows uh, what the answer is and how the chaff is supposed to be driven from it. It says, as the chaff that driveth with the whirlwind out of the floor, and as the smoke out of the chimney. Boy, that disappears quickly, doesn't it? Build that fire in the fireplace, and the smoke rises up, goes up in the air, and it's gone. In verse 4, it says, yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. God reminds them that He is the only God they've ever known, even though they'd fallen away, they'd gone into idolatrous worship. And this verse shows their real, their former relationship to God. That He had made a covenant with them. And we speak of that covenant later on as we go on progress. He says, Thou shalt know no God but Me. He's a jealous God. It says, For there is no Savior beside Me. That's not only true of Israel of old, but it's true for you and I today. The Lord Jesus is the only Savior. And the Bible says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And that's Acts 4, verse 12, if I'm not mistaken. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Now then, <clears throat> uh, in the book of Isaiah, God says, Look unto Me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. In verse 5, He says, I did know thee in the wilderness, in the land, of great drought. God speaks of their former knowledge of this nation and people and how He brought them through the droughts so Not only one, but if you have the Hebrew word in the margin, it says "droughts." It's more. It's plural. Verse 6, According to their pasture, so were they filled. They were filled, and their heart ex- was exalted. Therefore have they forgotten Me. They had forgotten God. They had a very rich pasture and were well supplied. But they forgot God. God had warned them back in the book of Deuteronomy. He says, when you get prosperous and when you go into the land and you have all these blessings and you're fruitful and you're multiplied, and He says, beware lest you forget the Lord your God. You know, sometimes we as God's people today have a tendency to forget God when things are going well. And a lot of times it takes a little stirring of affliction and problems to deal with. In order to humble us and and get us to realize that we have nothing of ourselves, and we must depend, learn to depend upon God when things are good as well as when they get bad. When when they're bad, you know, uh, David says, "Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will hear thee; I will answer thee." But why do we have to wait till the day of trouble? Why can we not call upon God and thank God? every day for every blessing. And with the right attitude, we as Christians are able to do that by the grace of God. And help us to be mindful of it day by day. We're reminded of a song we sing, Count Your Many Blessings, name them one by one. Count Your Many Blessings, see what God has done. And if we count them, we'll find that even in the midst of all of our problems and trials, we've been blessed. And the things that are common to to man, it says there's no temptation that will... uh, happen to you, but what is common to man, God will with every temptation make a way of escape, and he says that you may be able to bear it. The psalmist said, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I've kept thy word. He said also in Psalm 119, he says, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. And then again in Psalm 119, he says, I know, Lord, that in faithfulness that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. God's faithfulness sometimes brings what we have to face our way. And it does that for the better of our lives. You know, if everything was sunshine and there was no rain, no clouds, it would be a pretty dry world, wouldn't it? And so we have to have the storms as well as the, as, as the good times, the sunshiny days. And we find that even in the storms, they leave the dew and the moisture and and uh, they cleanse, cleanse the earth and refresh the earth. And a lot of things happen that are good out of storms. So God says here, according to their pasture, so were they filled. And in their being filled, what happened? They were, it says again, they were filled. So their heart was exalted. Therefore, have they forgotten me. They've forgotten God and all of it. In Verse 7. Therefore I will be unto them as a lion, and as a a leopard, by the way, will I observe them. I will meet them as a bear, that is bereaved of her whelps, and I will rend the call of their heart. And there will I devour them like a lion, the wild beast shall tear them. You know, if you had Daniel chapter 7, you'll find that these symbols are spoken of in, in prophecy of the last days. That you'll find, well, in the days of the tribulation, the book of Revelation... But Daniel chapter 7 tells us of the lion. And it's symbolical of Babylon. And then a leopard is symbolical of Greece. And the bear is symbolical of media Persia. And the beast of the field, the last one, the wild beast, if you have a marginal reference, it says the beast of the field. And there's a great beast that will rise up in the last days, that last beast that will be deceit, uh, dreadful, and terrible. And it's typical of the yet-to-be-revived Roman Empire. In fact, the beast represents the Roman Empire, but uh, it's the, in the book of Revelation, it's the revived Roman Empire. And when we study the book of Daniel, you'll find, uh, well, or the book of Revelation, you'll find that these things and it's, are symbolical here. The lion, the leopard, the bear, and the beast are going to arise. And here in the book of Hosea, they're coupled together to show God's judgment upon His people and what they will have to endure. Read those two verses again now. Verse 7, Therefore I will be unto them as a lion, as a leopard. By the way will I observe them. I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps and will rend the call of their heart. And there will I devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. It doesn't mean that God is going to be all of that in the book of Revelation, but these are symbolical uh Statements here as to how he would judge Israel of old. In verse 9, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. Look at verse 9. It's your destruction. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. When we, when we self-destruct, where do we find our help? Isn't it a, an amazing thing and a terrible thing that we co- cause more harm to ourselves than anyone else does? Self-inflicted wounds. And we don't gain a thing by it. We're the loser. But if it says, but in me is thine help. You know, there's so many lessons here, isn't there? That we can learn about ourselves and about life and how to deal with it. <laughs> if we just turn to God for help instead of destroying ourselves. It's, you know, the people that destroy themselves are kind of like those that, in Elijah's day, remember? That they... Uh, Worshippers of Baal. They inflicted wounds upon themselves, wanting their God to hear them. And they thought the more that they uh, wounded themselves, they cut themselves with lancets and they did all kinds of things to try to get the attention of their God. Well, He's not a living God anyway. And He couldn't hear and answer to their prayers. And so Elijah prayed and He says, God, if, if I'm your prophet and if you, these are your people and if I've been true to you, uh, well, he says, hear from heaven. By the way, he didn't pray very long either. They prayed from morning till noon, didn't they? And then the time of the evening sacrifice, which is three in the afternoon, well, Elijah, he had prepared the altar and everything and put the wood there and, and, uh, on the altar and, uh, and everything was in order, the sacrifice. And uh, he even filled a trench, dug a trench round about it. And remember, this was a time of drought and took of all the water they could find, I suppose, and saturated that sacrifice in the wood. It's pretty hard to kindle a wet wood, isn't it? And then they had the water in the trench round about, and he prayed to God. And what? God sent a fire down from heaven, and it devoured the wood and the sacrifice and the altar and the whole bed, and, and licked up the water that was in the trench in answer to Elijah's prayer. And if you study his prayer, it was less than 30 to 45 seconds Sometimes we think a long prayer is what gets the job done. It's, a, it's just prayer. Oh, Peter out there sinking, you know, when he took his eyes off Jesus? All he said was, Lord, save me. I mean, he didn't have time. He's going down probably the third time, huh? And he didn't have time for anything else. And it's how sincere, it's, it's how much we need, and when we call upon God, what we believe, and how we trust Him. And God is there to answer our prayer. So, in verse 9, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. Now in verse ten, it says, "I will be thy king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? Who else can do it?" And thy judges, of whom thou saidst, "Give me a king and princes." Remember, they wanted a judge; they wanted a king uh, of their own choosing. Earlier, and God gave them Saul to be their king, and he turned out to be the king of the people's choice. And God finally, God permitted him to be that. And then God gave them David to really be their king, didn't He? God permitted them to have a king of their own choice because uh, they were depending upon them. And thy judges of whom thou saidest, give me a king and princes. He says, I gave thee a king in mine anger and took, took him away in my wrath. Referring to the same person we just mentioned. God was not pleased to yield to their whims of wanting a king. And He gave them a king in His anger. And that was old Saul. It says when God and remember he tried to kill David time and time again, when God had already when God had finally chosen David to be king and, and he was anointed to be the coming king. But David put up with old Saul for a long time, didn't he? Before he took possession of his office. In due time, God always has things in due time. The proper time he'll put you where you need to be. He'll take care of you in that situation. And he had raised up David to be their king. He said, I gave them a king in mine anger and took him away in my wrath. In verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. The word bound up means laid in store. It's bound up. Did you know our sins are laid in store? Especially the sins of those who... Uh, rebel against God, they're laid in store. They're treasuring up wrath against the day of wrath. Look in Romans chapter 2, if you will, in verse 5. Romans 2, in verse 5. See what it says here. Let's read verse 4 and 5. Oh, the whole passage would be good. Let's start with verse 3. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them that do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt... Notice, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. Now, there's no, it's talking about judgment here. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering? Do you despise God's goodness and forbearance and long suffering? Not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. It's God's goodness that leadeth thee to repentance. But he says in verse 5, now this is the key verse, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart, it, not repentant heart, but impenitent heart, treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He is going to give them what? Eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath." Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh a good to the Jew first and also of the Gentiles. For there is no respect of person with God. Let's go on and turn back now. So, treasures up unto thyself. The thought is bound up. Back in uh, Hosea 13 and verse 12. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. It's bound up, it's stored up. Verse 13. The sorrows of travail of travailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son for he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children. We find here that God is speaking of the fact that it's a sudden and unpreventable and determined travail that will come upon Ephraim, because of his sin. Now look at verse 14. It says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. The word grave here is Sheol. It's not hell, but the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. This applies to the restoration of Israel. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. From their situation that they will be in, God is going to ransom ransom them. And it applies to the restored nation. Then he says in verse 15, Though he be fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come, the wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness, and his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall spoil the treasure of all his pleasant vessels. Here's a description of the desolation of the nearing judgment. The horrors of this nearing judgment. Let's read it again. Though he be fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The east wind was a scorching wind. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness. God is going to send it. And his spring shall become dry. And his fountain shall be dried up. He shall spoil the treasure of all his pleasant vessels. All his vessels of desire is actually what it is. And God says he's going to destroy them. That's the horror of this coming judgment. Then he says in verse 16, Samaria shall become desolate, for she hath rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces, and their women with child shall be ripped up. He speaks of the terrible things, the horrors of this coming judgment that God predicted would happen. Because of what? Of their sins, their idolatrous worship and everything. We'll pick up with the 14th.